Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Eva Dabrowska. She is professor at Friedrich Alexander University, Erlangen, in Germany, and in the Department of English Language and Linguistics at Birmingham University. Her research interests include cognitive linguistics, language acquisition, the mental status of rules, and individual differences in linguistic knowledge. And those are the topics we're going to talk about today. So Dr. Dabrowska, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, great. So, I mean, I've already talked with some ling ling uh, people who do work in linguistics on the show, uh, and I would like to ask you first. So it seems that there are different approaches in linguistics. One of them is nativism. So could you tell us about it? About nativism? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, well, nativism is, is uh, there's nativism in linguistics. It's a, it's a much broader approach. It's, it's a sort of approach to understanding uh, humans that's uh, common in psychology as well. But basically, uh, let's apply it to linguistics. The idea is that, um, okay, maybe it's best to talk about two different senses of a nativism. So one is the belief that human beings are innately predisposed to acquire language. And we might call this um, nativism in the broad sense. A narrower sense would be the belief that uh, human beings possess innate linguistic knowledge. Uh, and these two understandings uh, or these two different senses are often confounded. So for example, Chomsky in a number of publications makes this argument that if you don't believe that language is innate, uh, you uh, think that my niece, um, a rabbit and a rock are exactly the same because uh, if you put your niece, a rabbit and a rock in an English speaking environment, um, they'll end up speaking English. So this is kind of a reductio ad absurdum. And of course, um, in the broad sense, there is something about um, our brains that makes it possible for us to learn language. And no, nobody disputes that. Uh, when we talk about nativism, we, we mean it in the more specific sense that we are born with a body of linguistic knowledge or some abilities which are um, language specific. And this of course is much more controversial. Mm -hmm. uh, and what about constructivism? That's another approach, right? That's another approach. Again, it's something, uh, an approach from psychology also quite influential in um, education. Mm -hmm. um, in linguistics, uh, okay, well, let's start with the approach. So the idea with constructivism is that human beings construct their own mental representations of the world. Uh, and it's usually, in the past at least, it typically constructivism was not contrasted with nativism, but with behaviorism or this idea that you simply soak up knowledge. So the idea with constructivism is that you're not simply absorbing facts when you're learning something, but you're building, constructing a mental representation of it. Um, in linguistics, um, I think that many people uh, believe in the, in the sort of broad idea it's uh, it's incarnations are much more specific. So I think I would I would prefer to talk about specific constructivist theory, like uh, for example construction grammar. But anyway, it's the idea that you construct uh, your own representation using whatever mental uh, abilities you've got, and constructivists tend to emphasize domain general uh, mental abilities, um, in contrast to nativists who would emphasize domain specific mental abilities. Are there any other approaches or are these the two main ones? Um, well, it's, it's a difficult question. I, I wouldn't divide the world into nativists and constructivists. Um, and I think both of these categories are very broad and a number of very different approaches uh, are connected with them. And I suppose there are still some behaviorists lurking in the corridors somewhere. <laughs> Uh, so no, it's not just these two approaches, but uh, I think this is more of a philosophical question that whether you tend to look at language in terms of domain general uh, versus um, abilities versus domain specific. 
And of course, it could be a mixture. Uh, it's not either one or the other. It could be that uh, we rely primarily on a domain general abilities, but there are language-specific adaptations that make language that make us particularly good at learning language. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, in terms of the dispute between nativism and constructivism, is it that one of them has more evidence behind it or not? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I'm, I, I can only speak for the constructivists. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm impartial here. Um, and as, as you probably know, I've published, uh, I've done my small contribution to Chomsky bashing, and I wouldn't want this to turn into a Chomsky bashing interview. I, um, I think, so the, the, the Discussion sometimes between constructivists and nativists sometimes turns into a, a sort of argument uh, which generates more heat than light. Uh, having said that, um, the, a lot of people in both camps, but this is probably more prevalent in the nativist camp, um, treat this, the, this kind of philosophy as, as a sort of religion. So I believe that language is innate. On the other side, you do get, I believe that language is not innate and end of discussion. And I don't think that's a terribly um, useful uh, approach. Having said that, um, the nativists have made a number of very strong claims, which I believe are false. And, and they could have presupposed things, made assertions without very much evidence. Um, so I would, let me put it this way, I don't think uh, there is very much evidence for the innateness of universal grammar, which is a critical uh, claim made by the nativists. Uh, it doesn't follow that um, language depends entirely on domain general abilities and that there is no linguistic, no innate knowledge. I think a more constructive approach is to try to explain uh, language acquisition and language processing as best we can by relying on what we know about how the human mind works. It might turn out that there are certain things that we cannot explain. And then uh, we might have to, uh, they might turn out to be innate. It's an empirical issue. So I wouldn't preclude the possibility entirely. But what I really dislike about um, nativism is that quite often people just start with the assumption that something is innate and then look for um, supporting evidence. And that's right. pseudoscience, <laughs> not science. Yeah, I understand. Okay, and since language basically is a, at least in part a social phenomenon, there are also functional theories of language, correct? Yes, um, yes, absolutely. So functional uh, theories, as the name suggests, tend to concentrate on the functions of language as opposed to um, language as a cognitive process. Um, the functions of language and the functions of various parts of language. I think um, uh, in the past, certainly, people have identified the uh, cognitive kind of talked about cognitive and functional theories in one breath, although they are very different uh, theories, but simply because they were in opposition to the dominant uh, Chomsky paradigm. Uh, I think it makes sense to look at the functions of language and more broadly language in its social context um, and language in its con cognitive context. I don't think these two approaches are um, incompatible. And in fact, language is both cognitive and social. So there is a sense in which everybody's grammar, your mental representations of language are private. Uh, you, nobody can look inside your head. Um, the only thing that's public is the spoken words that we produce from which learners um, infer grammar. So, um, and the, the dynamics that describe what happens in the mind and what happens between speakers and the arena of usage, if you like, are very different. They're not incompatible, they're just different sides of, 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 the, of the same coin or different aspects of, of the same phenomenon. So I think an all-inclusive phenomenon, uh, the description of language should include both perspectives. So I wouldn't uh, treat it as a different um, 
approach, as an incompatible approach, I would treat it as something that is just the other side of the coin. And that if we hope to understand language, we have to bring together. And this is whether you are a cognitive linguist uh, uh, or a formal linguist, a generativist, uh, you, at some point you will have to address the facts of usage, the fact that language is used for communication between humans. Mm -hmm. So I know that you're interested in your work in studying how people acquire their native language and also uh, second languages. So are, are more educated people better at processing their native language? Oh, yes. Well, okay, it, it, it depends on what you mean by processing. Okay. Uh, so let, let, let's start with that. So most of the work that I've done has been on not so much language processing as representations, uh, which enable you to arrive at, a, uh, at the conventional interpretation of a particular uh, sentence or which allow you to produce a particular sentence. Mm -hmm. So it's not so it's the outcome of processing rather than the, the process of processing, so to speak. Um, so you can look at whether some people master the grammar of their language more fully than others. That's what a lot of my research has focused on, and I believe that is the case. Uh, the, uh, you can look at it in a a narrower sense or a different sense, look at processing in the sense of how quickly people do it, how effective they are. And there are almost certainly um, individual differences there. Uh, that's um, not really my field. I have done a little bit of work in that area, but not as much as in concentrating on representations. But yes, there certainly is evidence that different speakers' um, mental grammars differ beyond what we know from research on, for, for example, dialectal differences. So I'm not interested in those kinds of differences, but that simply some speakers appear not, not to master certain constructions of their language or not to master the grammar of the language fully. Mm -hmm. And I mean, these, uh, just to make sure, these are people that also acquired uh, a, a specific native language and there's differences between how they are able to represent language? Yes, and it's there. Um, we're talking about differences in how well speakers learn their own, their first language, their native language. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so, in your work, I read about the ultimate attainment of native language. What is that? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the the term ultimate attainment is mostly used in second language acquisition. And uh, so there's a whole tradition of work in second language uh, research where they uh, compare the attainment of people who started learning a language in adulthood with that of native speakers. So the idea is you continue um, to improve as you learn the language and then you reach a certain level where you plateau and that uh, typically second language learners, adult second language learners do not achieve the same level as native speakers. Uh, so that's where uh, the ultimate attainment is the level that you use at the end. I think it's a useful uh, idealization. Strictly speaking, it's probably not some, uh, we, we, we don't reach a final stage in language acquisition. Our, our um, language continues to develop throughout our lives. Uh, and that's true for second language learners as, as well as first language learners. And what's interesting is also that different aspects of language sort of plateau at different times. So typically, okay, in early in development, improvement is very uh, fast, then it levels off. Uh, Eventually, sadly, as we become old, we start losing certain things, sentimental capacities. But the trajectories are different for different aspects of language. So um, in terms of grammar, performance improves up to about age 20, 30, and then plateaus. And then it's not until quite late that it uh, begins to decline. But for instance, vocabulary continues to develop throughout most of your adult life, um, at least, well, especially if you read well into the 60s. Eventually, we all le so we learn new words all the time. We also forget words uh, that we don't use very often. And 
after 65 or so, the, the rate of forgetting is starts getting higher than the rate of learning new words. But even 80-year-olds, obviously, 90-year-olds are capable of learning uh, new words uh, when they are exposed to them. But the, the overall vocabulary size increases. Anyway, so it's a very different tra trajectory for vocabulary and grammar. So you know, what would be the ultimate attainment? It depends on which aspect of language you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Does uh, language attainment have anything to do with uh, implicit and explicit memory? Uh, yes, it's almost, if you think about it, it's ne almost necessarily true. If you learn a language, you have to, languages are big things. They involve a lot of knowledge, a lot of different kinds of knowledge. We learn the meanings of uh, tens of thousands of words. We learn lots of, and the grammatical patterns in which they occur. So all that requires a vast amount of memory storage. Uh, and then the question arises, you mentioned explicit or implicit memory. Uh, people also talk about declarative as opposed to procedural memory. The two sets of terms, so implicit and procedural on the one hand and declarative and explicit on the other hand, are not exactly synonymous, uh, but they're often used interchangeably. Um, so yes, I think both of these uh, processes play a role, both of these memory systems play a role, an important role in language. Uh, the, the debate is exactly where and how. So the traditional view has been that um, lexical learning, learning the meanings of words, relies on mm, explicit or declarative memory, whereas grammar learning re relies primarily on uh, implicit or procedural memory. Um, I would say that's an oversimplification. So certainly uh, declarative memory and, and the declarative, the explicit system has an important role to play in learning the grammar as well. Uh, and arguably uh, procedural memory is also involved in learning words. So it might be the case that uh, you know, one plays a bigger role than the other, but both systems are involved in both kinds of learning. Right. Are there individual differences in uh, language attainment, particularly the ultimate attainment of a native language? Yes, uh, there are. I mean, uh, that, well, let's start with something that's relatively uncontroversial. So I don't mm -hmm. think anybody would um, uh, debate the fact that speakers differ in the vocabulary size, first of all. So, so some speakers have much larger vocabularies than others, and also speakers know different words. So probably every linguist knows the word polysynthetic, but uh, outside of linguistics, it's probably not such a widely known term. Um, psychologists talk about phenomena, or statisticians talk about phenomena like heteroscedasticity, uh, which is not exactly part of everybody's vocabulary. And every area, every hobby, every profession, almost every profession will have specialized vocabulary. And that's kind of obvious and not terribly interesting. Uh, I would argue that the same is true of grammar. So in other words, speakers vary in terms of the kind of mental grammar that they have. And there could be several kinds of differences. So speakers, some speakers, well, okay, one obvious difference, again, is dialectal differences. So um, people in the, in, in the north of England, um, there is the so-called northern subject rule, which um, basically means that agreement works a little bit different, agreement morphology works a little bit differently. So they say things like they sings, for example, that's perfectly grammatical. Um, now, that's that. That's again well well known, and I'm not interested in that. But I would also argue that there are substantial differences in the grammars of speakers who produce language that that are more or less the same. So, in other words, uh, it's not that. In addition to speakers producing sentences which might be sound strange or even ungrammatical to speakers of. Uh, different varieties, speakers might produce the same sentences or the same type of sentences, 
but uh, using different underlying grammars. Now, there's several ways in, in which this could happen. One is, the most obvious is a particular speaker might lack a specific type of role, in which case they wouldn't be able to produce a particular structure. So in this case, uh, they wouldn't be say, their production wouldn't be exactly the same as that of other speakers, but they would simply avoid that construction. So let's say you uh, assume for the sake, let's assume for the sake of argument that some speakers have never mastered the um, constructional template for questions with long distance dependencies. Like, what do you think you are doing? Where what goes with the verb in the subordinate clause doing? Uh, then they wouldn't produce this structure, but they would say something else. Uh, what are you doing? Uh, I, I, I can't see what you're doing. There, there's also the ways of expressing a similar message, and you probably wouldn't notice that they are avoiding a particular structure unless you con conducted a systematic analysis of their output. Um, perhaps a more plausible scenario let's stick to the same example questions with long distance dependencies perhaps a more plausible scenario is you a speaker rather than learning an abstract template for this kind of construction which involves uh, a dependency between a, a an element in the subordinate clause and the, the WH word at the beginning of the clause, they might simply memorize um, some lexically specific templates, like what do you think plus subordinate clause? What do you think you're doing? Uh, what do you think she wants? Um, what do you think we should eat? And so on. So that would allow you to create questions that match this template. What do you think plus subordinate clause? But not questions like, where do you believe that John said that Tom believed that oh, we lived, <laughs> something like that. And again, in this case, given that the, ma uh, um, the majority of questions with long distance dependencies that we produce do actually have the form either, what do you think, or WH word, do you think, or what uh, did you say, plus subordinate clause, you probably wouldn't notice. So in this case, we might have speakers who have the abstract um, template and other speakers who only have the more lexically specific templates and they produce many of the same structure using different underlying knowledge. Another example might be, I've done quite a lot of work on the Polish genitive, which is quite interesting in that it is quite irregular. It's a bit of a nightmare. There's in fact a monograph written by a bloke called Westphal, which is about 400 pages of rules of when to use which of the genitive ending. And it's not even about all of the genitive, it's specifically the genitive singular of masculine nouns in Polish, which take one of two endings, a or o. And the question is, when do you use a, when do you use o? So he says that, well, with cigarette brands and parts of plants, and uh, the front parts of the body use this and with back parts of the body. And, you know, so he's got, got hundreds of very, very specific rules uh, for when to use which um, inflection. I've done some work which used uh, the nonce word methodology where you teach people a new word uh, and then ask them to use it in a grammatical context requiring uh, the genitive uh, to, or figure out which ending they would use. And basically what happens is very interesting because what you find is that different people have different roles. So linguists have always struggled to describe this. If you look, you, you can formulate very general rules like most uh, nouns take a, or you can have slightly more specific rules like inanimate, uh, all animate nouns, virtually all animate nouns take are, and the majority of inanimate nouns take all. Or you can have an even more specific rule and say words, um, nouns referring to small, easily manipulable objects take are, and nouns referring to substances take all. Or you can also rely on the fact that certain morphological endings or certain phonological properties are associated with one or the other of the two endings. And people have been struggling 
to figure out, well, which is the best description, which is the correct description. If you look at native speakers' grammars, it turns out that some people seem to have learned the very abstract role. So they'll just use ah with all nouns. Uh, some people seem to use ah with animate nouns and or with inanimate nouns. Some people have these more specific roles. So in other words, they get, uh, if you have, uh, you, obviously, um, wh whichever you role you learn, you're going to have some exceptions. You might have very general roles with lots of exceptions or very specific roles with fewer exceptions. And it seems that some people um, end up take, making, uh, uh, abstracting one or the other system, but it varies between speakers. Mm -hmm. This is interesting because, I, I mean, when you study a language, of course, we have, for example, uh, grammars and dictionaries, but those are things that uh, until very recently, most people didn't have access to. So, I mean, probably formal schooling, I would imagine, also has some influence on how people acquire their native language, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um that's another area where I've, I've done quite a lot of work. So um, if, you, if you look at individual, so okay, there are broadly speaking, you might talk about two different classes of individual differences. So the last example that I gave, the Polish genitive, is just that some speakers do it this way, some speakers do it a different way. There doesn't seem to be any particular pattern in um, how um, related to education or social background. But there are also a number of other individual differences which do seem to be related to education in the, in the sense that, um, well, let me give you a few examples first. Uh, so for example, comprehension of constructions like object relatives or object clefts. So sentences like an object relative would be this, uh, the boy that, the girl kissed, as opposed to the boy that kissed the girl, which would be a subject relative. So subject relatives are easy, object relatives are more difficult, and some adults struggle with them. Uh, another example would be quantifier scope. So when you have words like every and exactly how they map onto different nouns in the sentence, um, a lot of people have problems with uh, understanding some of the nuances then. So um, I've done a number of studies where I tested people's ability to comprehend simple sentences. So using a picture selection task. So you have two pictures, say a boy kissing a girl and a girl kissing a boy and the subject and the, and the sentences, this is the boy that the girl kissed um, or this is the boy that kissed the girl and you have to point to the, to the right picture. Now, in these types of studies, a very interesting pattern emerges, namely that if you test educated speakers, they are, uh, with the type of examples that I gave you, they're all at ceiling. They all answer, give you the correct response virtually uh, 100% of the time. They might make an occasional error where they switch their brains off because the test was so boring, but ba basically you get uh, very close to 100% correct, or in some studies, literally 100%. So that I have studies where 100% of the educated informants responded correctly 100% of the time. If you look at the participants with less education, you get a different pattern. So some of them are just as good as the highly educated speakers. Uh, some of them are at chance or even below chance on some constructions. Most are somewhere in between. So they, they are usually above chance, but uh, certainly not at ceiling. And there is quite a lot of uh, variation there. So it, it, uh, the difference correlates with education in the sense that educated speakers always um, give you what you expect, whereas in the uh, less educated speakers, there is much more variation. Um, the question then is to what extent this is due to education per se, and to what extent this is due to factors that correlate with education, such as intelligence, language aptitude, experience with written language, and so on. And it seems that all of these factors play a role. Education on its own is actually, that, that does have a significant effect, but it's quite small. 
Well, actually, well, in one study, I found a significant effect. In another study, uh, there was a tiny effect, but it wasn't even significant. So it, it looks like there probably is effect, an effect, but it's very, very small. It tends to be mostly the other factors that correlate with education. Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, that that you just said is very interesting that uh, education has an important impact, but small and then you also mentioned things like intelligence so could you could it be that at least in part some of these individual differences would be innate or genetically based oh uh, well yeah so if they are i mean if you think about it logically there are two possibilities either they are they have something to do with the input that uh, speakers receive or they have to do with uh, in the, with the way they are, the inborn individual differences. Uh, so yes, uh, in the, in that sense, I think the differences are at least partially attributable to innate. Dif we know that intelligence is to a large degree, not entirely, but to some degree, innate. Uh, we presumably the same goes for things like phonological memory and. Um, um, language aptitude and so on. So yes, uh, these kind of general characteristics of individuals that make them better learners, better at solving problems are also relevant to language. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I mean, do these individual, individual differences include differences between how people acquire their native language and how people acquire the same language, but as a second language. You mean, do the same types of individual differences matter in mm -hmm. both contexts? Context? Uh, yeah, or, or, or I mean, let's say that we have some people who are native speakers and others who acquire that same language, but as a secondary language, as a second language. Mm -hmm. would, would we find also differences in how those two groups of people speak? Well, empirically, uh, you would, in that if you look at people who learned a second language in adulthood, uh, it is rare. It's not, uh, it does happen, but it is quite rare for people to be uh, entirely native, late second language learners to be uh, native-like or entirely native-like. Uh, so clearly there is something that stops most people acquiring, um, achieving native-like proficiency. Uh, then you might ask, why is that the case? And to what extent, is it because they uh, rely on different types of me mental mechanisms that so the traditional nativist explanation was that they don't have access to universal grammar or they have limited access to universal grammar, which of course makes it a bit problematic with the exceptions, the people who can learn it. So then the explanation was, well, they uh, rely on different mental abilities. So whereas um, children acquiring their first language uh, rely on implicit learning, um, adults have to rely on this kind of explicit studying, uh, learning rules, uh, being taught uh, instruction and so on. Um, there is some truth in this, but uh, the matter is very complicated, let's put it this way. <laughs> okay, but, but do we know if it's harder for adults to acquire a second language than for children? Um, Okay. Again, I mean, you could interpret harder in two different ways. One is, okay. and I think some people say that you, you really have to work at it, whereas children don't work at it. And another interpretation of the question harder is children get their adults, don't, they usually don't get them. So in terms of working at it, yes, children don't go to school and don't write down complicated grammatical rules in their notebooks when they learn their first language, at least not before they went to school, before they go to school. But it doesn't follow that they don't learn hard. And actually, um, okay, before I go on to whether it's harder, easier, whether children are better language learners than adults, um, it might be useful to do a little arithmetic exercise. Okay. 
So let's say the it, it's it's people often say that children have acquired the grammar of the native language more or less perfectly by the age of five or six or seven or three, but let's say five for the sake of argument, that's probably the most common age. Uh, let's say we know that very babies don't do language, that children don't start producing um, words until just before their first birthday and don't really respond much to language before then. So let's assume for the sake of argument that language acquisition begins at age one or grammar acquisition begins at age one and ends at age five. So that gives you four years. And let's assume for the sake of argument that children are exposed to language uh, for eight hours a day. This is a very conservative estimate because children are exposed to language virtually every hour of their waking life. So when they're not asleep, their chances are that they are most of the time, either they'll be talking to someone or they'll be hearing adults talking or they'll be hearing the TV playing in the background and perhaps watching it, uh, whatever. So they're exposed to language uh, probably much more than eight hours. But let's say eight hours per day for four years. So let me just get my calculator out. Um, eight hours per day times 365 days in a year times four years equals 11,680. Now, uh, an another important point to make is that children, actually language acquisition continues much longer than up to age uh, six. And the, the, the latest evidence is that it's probably uh, grammatical performance continues to improve up to about age 30. But okay, let's just take five years, 11,680 hours. Now, imagine that you're a second language learner, you're learning language at school, and let's say you get 10 hours of exposure per week, maybe five hours of classes and five hours homework outside of school. And let's say you are attending school for 30 or having this instruction for 30 um, weeks per year, you've turned out all the subtract vacations and so on. So 30 weeks per year times 10, that's 300 hours per year, right? Mm -hmm. So now 11,680 divided by 300 is 38.9 years. Mm -hmm. So that second learner, in order to have the same amount of input as a, a five-year-old child would have to learn English, learn a foreign language for 10 hours a week for 39 years. Most of us don't go to school that long. So that kind of puts things in perspective that, okay, adults typically don't achieve childlike levels of proficiency, but they usually have much less time. This is obviously true for people who learn a foreign language in school. It's also true for people who learn a second language in naturalistic settings. So let's say, uh, so the, the usual, the conventional wisdom that child, children are better learners than adults is based on the very common observation of an immigrant family that comes into a country. And after a couple of years, uh, the children can speak the language reasonably well, fluently, and the adults still struggle. What people often forget is that the children go to school and are exposed to the language all day. Whereas the adults, uh, if, if you don't know the language, you can't do any kind of job which requires you to know the language. So you end up doing unskilled jobs where either you have very limited exposure to language uh, or, uh, you know, so if, if you are, I don't know, a cleaner in a hotel, you don't get uh, to talk very much in the language. And, you, and when you do talk, um, the chances are that you'll be talking to other foreigners who don't know the language either. So th th these examples show how different the situation is. Okay, uh, so that's kind of a reality check. Um, there are, so, children typically get much more input and much better input than adult learners. And that is one of the reasons why they are more successful. It doesn't mean that they find it easier to learn the language. They just have 
they are in a position where they have better opportunities for learning it. Uh, studies which have looked at how children compare to adults, um, given the same input, have shown that adults learn faster, at least in the beginning. Whether it works in the long run is another matter. Probably not in that there are lots of foreigners who uh, end up either know the language reasonably well when they arrive in a country or they learn it and acquire a reasonable level of competence after a few years where they can interact freely with natives, uh, but they retain an accent, they make certain errors. That's a very common observation. So there there's certainly is, um, yeah, so the, the common observation is that second language learners usually don't attain uh, native-like proficiency. Uh, the question arises, why? And this is a very interesting question. And one way of looking at it is um, there's now a vast amount of research on heritage language speakers. So these are people who learn a language, a minority language, typically from their parents, while living in a country where another language is spoken. Uh, so a typical situation might be, let's say, Polish immigrants in the UK, the children learn Polish at home or speak Polish at home and um, English at school, or Turkish, or Spanish, whatever. A typical observation is that these children, if you look at their first language, so, so they acquire the second language uh, perfectly. They are just like native speakers, um, which is used to make the claim that children are better language learners. What people often forget is the, uh, what happens with the first language of these speakers, which typically just stop at, stops developing at a fairly early stage of acquisition. So in other words, the majority of these speakers are not fully bilingual. They might be competent speakers of the um, heritage language, but they are not like monolingual native speakers. And some end up being passive bilinguals, so they can understand the heritage language, but not speakers, just say a few words. In exceptional cases, they might lose uh, the, the first language altogether. So in other words, if you're comparing the successful child who has learned Let's say we, we have a Polish family arriving in the UK, and after 10 years, the children speak uh, the language fluently, just like native speakers. The adults don't. Uh, so are they better language learners? Well, uh, they've learned English better. On the other hand, they've also forgotten or not quite mastered their first language. So maybe a, a more accurate way of describing the, the situation is that they are better at forgetting their native language. <laughs> So in other words, it's very rare, it does happen, but it's relatively rare to be for uh, a, a speaker to be native-like in two different languages. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So with all of that in mind, do you think we can at least say that factors like education and the sorts of inputs one gets? So for example, you mentioned that in certain contexts, people who are immigrants are not ex really exposed to the second language in their work environment, for example. So those two aspects at least play a role in language acquisition. Uh, sorry, which two aspects? Uh, education and input, basically. Yeah, well, input, I think, is uncontroversial. We know that children get vast amounts of input uh, and children who are deprived of input or any learner who is deprived of input will not achieve um, full mastery of the language. Or obviously, if you're deprived of input altogether, you'll not learn the language at all, obviously. Uh, so input clearly plays a role. Education um, also seems to play a role in the sense that, um, well, Let's come back to the, 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 the um, calculations that I did earlier of the foreign language learner who only gets, let's say, 10 hours per week in school for, let's say, 10 years. That would be quite intensive. But people who have five hours of instruction plus some homework for 10 years often acquire a very reasonable level of proficiency in that language, in the foreign language. Um, given the amount of input that they have had. So we, in, in my lab, we've conducted a study recently where we gave um, 
we tested three groups of people, native, uh, monolingual native speakers, well, monolingual and bilingual native speakers. There weren't any differences, so we, we threw them into a single pot, so to speak. But we had native speakers and then second language learners. So people who learn a second language, in this case, English, while living in an English speaking country and who have lived in the English speaking country for at least three years. And then people, foreign language learners, who learn the language primarily in the context at school in their, in their native country. And we gave them two types of grammatical tasks, um, a grammatical comprehension task, like the one I described earlier, where you have two pictures and you choose the picture that goes in the sentence, and a grammaticality judgment task, where you're given sentences like, the farmer bought two pig, and you have to decide if it's grammatical or not. And we found that if you look at um, group differences, then yes, native speakers do better uh, than non-natives, particularly on the grammaticality judgment task. Uh, but there's a lot of overlap between the groups. So in other words, even in the, in the classroom uh, learners, uh, there were quite a few who scored within the native speaker range, even though they had a lot less exposure to English than the native speakers. So education uh, clearly, so in other words, learning the language at school where you, um, uh, where the rules are explained to you, uh, where you are presented with the language in a kind of a structured format, where you see sentences written down so you can process them at your own pace. All that seems to help uh, in, and improve, um, make it possible for people to achieve a relatively high level of proficiency relatively quickly. So that's one kind of evidence. Another kind of evidence comes from uh, actually research which looked at um, people who are illiterate in the native language and who arrive usually as refugees in another country and try to learn the majority language there. And there is now this, in, in the last decade, we've had quite a lot of refugees in Europe and this became kind of a well-known problem that the illiterate speakers had found it much, much, much more difficult to learn um, a foreign language, at least in instructional settings uh, compared to their literate peers. And again, it's not clear to what extent it has to do with written representations, the ability to take advantage from, learn from a written representation as opposed to just hearing language. Uh, and to what extent it's due to simply knowing how to behave in a classroom and having experience with that. Or possibly um, IQ in that being deprived of education is not very beneficial for your general cognitive development. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay, so one last question then. When it comes to uh, one argument that, for example, Chomsky puts on the table for language nativism, the poverty of the stimulus, is the stimulus really poor or not? <laughs> yes, well, there, there's a lot of uh, debate on that. And that's obviously probably the most um, influential argument for innateness. Um, okay, so is the stimulus poor? Certainly, um, it is. We get vast amounts of it, which we sometimes forget, as, as you know, illustrated by the by the calculation that I did earlier. And of course, children learning a language are exposed not just to the language, but they also get contextual information. They get feedback from uh, other speak uh, from their interlocutors. There's gesture pointing, all sorts of things that help you work out the meaning. So you could argue that the stimulus is actually quite rich. On the other hand, that kind of uh, goes beside the point of the nativist argument, because nativists claim that uh, children acquire um, aspects of grammar for which there is no evidence in the input. And one simple way of explaining the argument is if you, uh, this is kind of a little exercise I used to do with students. So if you draw, uh, present them with a phrase structure tree with uh, obviously this very complicated hierarchical structure of the sentence with 
if, if you believe in Chomsky and linguistics, empty categories and so on. So the idea is that children hear the words, but they infer all these, in, all that invisible structure behind the words, the relationships, the abstract relationships between them, the empty categories, which by definition don't have any phonological realization and so on. Uh, and so the argument goes, you can't get from the, the sounds to these very complicated grammatical representations. And obviously that is true. I, I agree, you can't get from the sounds to those complicated grammatical representations. But my reply to that would be not that this proves that we have to have universal grammar and innate linguistic knowledge, but that we need a linguistic theory which doesn't postulate such um, psychologically implausible constructs. In other words, we can explain language using a different approach, for example, construction grammar, which doesn't assume this, these invisible uh, abstract structures. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Dabroska, just before we go, where can people find your work on the internet? Well, they can go to my webpage. Um, they, uh, just Google me is probably the simplest way. Um, yeah, there, there's some information on my webpage, which actually I need to update, but uh, at least most of my publications are there. And of course, if you go to Google Scholar, you'll find it there too. Okay, great. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing the channel for more than three years now and it is thanks to people like you that it's been running for so long and so if you like what I'm doing, please pay a visit to my Patreon page or to PayPal, all of the links are in the description box of the interview and to consider making a pledge there, support the show and otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share, share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevon Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Sam, uh, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araujo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Alan or uh, Al Orwitz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardos France, and Niroban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michelle Ruzieski, Rosie James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.